If you have your Bibles, you can get those open to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we're going to kind of be this morning. And we've got, a, we've got an outline as well. You see we're going to be um, bouncing around in some other scriptures and things as well. Um, this kicks off the first sermon in a series of six sermons related to the 40 days of prayer that the Christian Missionary Alliance is encouraging churches to participate in. There's a devotional guide. looks like this out on the table here in the foyer. And if you haven't picked one up, I encourage you to do that. Uh, it's also available digitally. So you can go on to tacreading.info and you can download it there. If you're having trouble there, you can go to the Christian and Missionary Alliance website and, um, and sign up there to have it emailed to you digitally as well. So, um, and it's uh, going through the 40 days and it got some prayer points and things in there and some scripture meditations and things. So uh, I want to encourage you to do that. But as I said, there are six messages that we are also uh, preaching over the next six weeks. I'm kicking that off with the one on uh, the holiness of God. Next week, um, Shalem Belpula will be um, speaking and sharing the next message, which is repentance. And I think I was going to say something tonight. I'm not going to do that. Never mind. <laughs> I looked at him. He just said, please don't. Please don't. You know. So I'm not going to. So <laughs> I don't want to answer to grace. That's really what I'm afraid of right there. So, okay, so we're going we're gonna to start with this, and we're going to talk about the holiness of God this morning as we do this. So, I'm going to kick this off by doing this. I am going to make a statement about myself, okay? And I want you to grab the first thing that comes into your mind after I make a statement about myself. The first thought you have about that statement, I want you to hang on to it, okay? Are you ready? All right, this is the statement. There will never be anyone exactly like me on this earth ever again. Okay, from the reaction, I can tell what some of you already thought. You probably had that thought that you had, it probably fell into one of these two categories. The one category was, you're right. There isn't going to be anybody else like you. And that would be the noble response. The other response you may have had was something like this, that's a good thing. <laughs> now, you may have meant one of two things when you thought that. You, by saying that's a good thing, you were actually saying one of you is enough on this earth. <laughs> we don't need any more like you. Or you thought when you said that's a good thing, yes, it is a good thing because it shows God's wonderful individual creative genius. Oh, yeah, now some of you that thought the other are going, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> it's true that we are all different from one another, isn't it? I mean, Paul writes extensively about this in 1 Corinthians 12, right? He talks about the body as many parts. It's all different, and we each, are, we each all have our own individual attributes that God has blessed us with and created us with, right? And he has fitted those things together. And, and, and so that differentness, that uniqueness that we each have is kind of a pale picture of God's holiness. It, it, it reflects that a little bit. And that's what we're talking about here this morning, is God's holiness. And maybe we should define that if we're going to talk about it. Now, we've all probably heard uh, different expositors and, and preachers and things talk about, well, holiness is basically means to be set apart. 
And they're right. That's really the basic definition. It means to be set apart, means to be different, uh, and, 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 and without blemish, things of that nature. Uh, pure would be another word that's used there. Let me give you a couple of definitions that I came across. One definition is this. The holiness is the moral excellence of God that unifies his attributes and is expressed through his actions, setting him apart from all others. We just sang some songs about the fact that God is holy. There is none other like him. That he, is, he is above everything, right? That, that he, is, he is pure, spotless, blameless. John MacArthur has defined it this way. Now, I know some, some people may struggle, and then I say John MacArthur, go, okay, whatever. There are things I like about John MacArthur, and there are things I don't like about John MacArthur. But I think, you know, he, he is an excellent Bible expositor, and this definition that, that he puts out here, I think, really helps us understand this, this issue of holiness a little bit uh, better, perhaps. So let me just share this with you. Holiness is the one attribute of God that most uniquely describes him and, in reality, is the summation of all his other attributes. The word holiness refers to his separateness, his otherness, the fact that he is unlike any other being. It indicates his complete and infinite perfection. Holiness is the attribute of God that binds all the others together. When you think about the other attributes of God, like his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his love, that his holiness binds all of these together. And as we journey through this, I think you'll see how that is. There's an argument among scholars and preachers, things about what is the greatest attribute of God? And really kind of the argument boils down to two. Some argue that love is the greatest attribute of God. And some argue that holiness is the greatest attribute of God. Now, if you want to impress Pastor Sean the next time you're over at his house and having dinner or something, you can quote these statistics here to him, okay? I'm going to give you these statistics. If I really wanted to get at you, I'd tell you what the Greek and Hebrew said. You could get in that way. I'm not going to go there, okay? Here you go. In the Bible, love is used about 551 times in the NIV version. Holiness is used about 900 times. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> what, as I look at this argument, all of God's attributes must be there. They must come together in, in God for him to be who he is. You can't take out one of his attributes and say, oh, well, we don't, God doesn't need that one, so we can do it. It's the same thing that when you boil it down to love and holiness. You can't say one is above the other because there's an interplay between them. And you can't have one without the other for God to be perfect and pure. Because if you did, if you had love without holiness, it leads to imperfect love. Holiness binds all the other attributes of God in this way that it makes them perfect and complete. Because of God's holiness, he is perfectly loving. Because of God's holiness, he is perfectly powerful. Because of God's holiness... He is perfectly truthful. And on and on it goes. If you had love without holiness, it could lead to a conditional love. Well, I will love you if. And that's kind of what we do as humans, right? We, sometimes we get caught up in, well, I'll love you or like you if you do this for me. No, we're not supposed to do that. 
But if we're honest with ourselves, at times we catch ourselves doing that. But God does not, because he's holy. Romans 5.8 would never have happened if it was conditional love. Romans 5.8 says, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Without God's perfect love, without holiness being involved there, Jesus would not have come, most likely. In, Roman, in, excuse me, in Genesis 18, 16, Abraham is pleading for Sodom. Why is he pleading for Sodom? Because God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Because they are a city full of evil. They are a city full of sin, and I'm going to wipe them out. And Abraham says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lord, please have patience with me here, but if, if there were 50 righteous people found in there, would you, would you wipe them out? No, for 50 righteous people, I wouldn't wipe them out. And he goes on, and he continues to, to respectfully question God on this, to say, well, okay, what about 30 people? What about 20 people? What about 10 people? And God says, no, for 10 people, I, I would spare the city. In other words, God's holiness demanded that he rid Sodom and Gomorrah of, of the evil that was there. And, and the way to do that was to destroy them. But his love impacted so that he would respond in a way that for, for the righteousness of people, I will withhold my hand. Because I love the creation I've created, and I want to have this relationship with them. That's what love without holiness looks like. What about holiness without love? Holiness without love can lead to a vengeful, wrathful God toward his creation. God just saying, you know what? I'm going to wipe them out. What Adam and Eve did in the garden, forget it. I'm not sending them a savior. I'm not, I don't care about having a relationship with them. I don't care about pursuing that. Is that what God did? No. He pursued a relationship with us. Not because we asked for it. Not because we deserved it. But because God loved us. That he sent his only son. He had a relationship interest in us because of his love and holiness coming together. So why do we need to take a look at this idea of the holiness of God? I think because perhaps maybe in this day and age, we may become a little, become a little too casual in how we approach God and how we respect his holiness. That perhaps maybe we have elevated some of his other attributes like love, and we have minimized his holiness. The very nature of God's holiness demands that he cannot tolerate sin. And actually, Scripture describes the fact that God hates sin. You know, you tell your kids and things are growing up, don't ever use the word hate. God uses the word hate when regard to sin. He hates sin. And so he can't tolerate it. His holiness demands that he can't have anything to do with it. But his love says, I'm going to pay that price. I'm going to take care of it. And even though God can't tolerate sin, he does forgive us our sins, and we're going to see this as we go through it, but that doesn't mean that the consequences of our actions still don't come about. And we need to remember that. So I think, it, I think maybe we are perhaps becoming a little too casual and how we relate to our Holy Father. Now, I'm not talking about becoming monks and going off and, you know, being in the, the hills for days on end and things like that. Solitude times are great. Don't get me wrong. Those are, those are good things. 
And, and having that contemplation time with God is an awesome thing. But what I'm talking about is respecting God for who he is. Not minimizing his attribute of holiness as well as his other attributes. So in our passage this morning in Isaiah 6, we see a picture of God's holiness as Isaiah experienced it and ultimately what we can learn from this vision. The first part of this passage in verses 1 through 4 describe the vision that Isaiah is seeing. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who the whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The first thing that Isaiah sees here when he is confronted with God's holiness is the majesty of his holiness. The train of his robe fills the temple. He is sitting on this throne high above everything else. He sees the majesty of God here. He is above all others. He is undiluted. The, the vision that Isaiah is seeing is that he is pure. He is unlike human kings who can fail us. Because human kings are not holy. Human kings are not pure. Special interests and other kinds of attitudes can get in the way, but not with God. Because of his perfect holiness. He is above all. He is holy because he sits above all other gods. We've sang songs to that effect. The scripture talks about that. There is none like him. 1 Samuel 2.2 2, There is no one holy like you, Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. He is that foundation stone. He's the perfect one. There is no failure in him. Psalm 77.13 Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? It's a rhetorical question. There isn't one. There isn't one as great as our God. Hebrews 1.3 The sun is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. The majesty of God's holiness filling the temple of heaven. Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. So the first thing that Isaiah sees in this vision is the majesty of God's holiness. The second thing he sees is this. Isaiah sees God's holiness displayed in praise and worship to him. The seraphs are, are, are described running, uh, flying around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they continue this. And if this sounds familiar to you in verse 3, it should. Because it appears again in Revelation chapter 4. This is the vision that Isaiah is getting, getting a, a peek into. Is what ultimately the Apostle John would get in his vision of Revelation 
when he's on the island of Patmos. And we're going to look at that here in just a minute. Isaiah's vision of God reveals a God who was receiving constant praise and worship from those surrounding him. What does that mean for us? We're in relationship with him and surrounding him. We should have an attitude, a constant attitude of praise and worship of him. To allow him to develop that in us. And I'm not talking about being phony about it. I'm talking about being, being authentic with it. And learning how to experience that and how to display that and how to enter into it. 1 Chronicles 16.29 Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalm 99.5 Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Psalm 103, verse 1. Praise the Lord, my soul, and all my in, innermost being. Praise his holy name. These are just some of the examples in Scripture that talk about how we need to continue to worship the Lord and praise his name because he is holy. Because of what he has done for us and coming to us in his holiness, wanting to pursue that relationship with us, Revelation 4, 8 through 11. I talked about this a little bit ago. This was that passage that Isaiah was getting a peek into in chapter 6. This is what uh, verses 8 through 11 say of Revelation 4. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That sounds just like a song we just sang as well. Many of these songs we sing just don't, they don't get written just by people making up words. Many, most often it's, it's, it's men and women moved by God and the Holy Spirit bringing out scripture to us through music, the truths that are here. So Isaiah has seen the majesty of God's holiness. He sees Holiness displayed in praise and worship him. The next thing he sees in this vision is God's holiness displayed in power. In verse 4, it says that the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. These were signs of power, of awesome power. This is what moved Isaiah to have the response he's going to have here in a minute. But he, he seen this awesome power and it was, it was frightening. It was overwhelming. This showed that God was and is supreme and without equal. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. God is supremely powerful and has no rival. Darkness cannot be found in him. 
He, his holiness is, he is pure. That's how holy he is, without blemish. There is no fault in him. First uh, John 1, 5 tells us in, 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 uh, in that passage that this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. So Isaiah has this vision, he has this encounter, he sees the majesty of God's holiness, he sees praise and worship surrounding God's holiness, he sees the power of God's holiness. What kind of response does Isaiah give to God's holiness? Verse 5 of chapter 6, read this. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The first thing that Isaiah comes to here is self-awareness. As now he is face to face with perfect holiness, he realizes that he is not holy. He realizes that he is dirty. He realizes that there's imperfections in his life. He realizes that he was far from the holiness. When he when it paled in extreme comparison when he was standing side by side with God. He saw his own inadequacy. This is why some people don't like God's word. Because God's word shows the, 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 the righteousness and holiness of God and the, the, the perfection of his will, and it points out certain behaviors and things as being wrong. And, and because those things are wrong and people come into uh, 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 contact with that, they, they, just, they, either, they come to a point of decision. Either I'm going to submit to that and say, yes, the Lord of heaven it's declared this is wrong and I'm not going to uh, live this way. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit change me and make me. Or I'm going to say, no, I'm going to go my own way. Forget you, God. I'm going to live this way. And they try to manipulate mankind and things to say what was once evil is now good. Because they don't like the light shining in on their darkness. They don't have Isaiah's response. They have a selfish response. That's why there's a movement to try to get the word of God and, and to get the church out of the area of, of helping people grow up in their lives with certain behaviors and things and leading them into God's word to challenge some of these, these behaviors. Things like homosexuality and things like same-sex marriage and these kinds of things, they all fall into this category. Paul writes about this too, about how the law reflects what we know in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And this is what the law does for us. It, it shows us what sin and what behavior is wrong and is what they look like so that we have something to measure by. It's not relative. And that's the thing. The truth today is so much about relativism. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. What makes me feel good, that's true. That's relativism. Absolute truth is God's word says this and describes sin as this, therefore it's sin. End of discussion. The other response that Isaiah had to God's holiness, besides self-awareness, was fear. We read that in the verse because he says, 
I'm undone. I have seen the Lord, the King Almighty. You remember what, it, what the uh, Israelites thought when they would, if they seen God and weren't supposed to? No man can see God and live. That they, when, uh, when Moses was in, the, uh, in, in with God for a while and things, and they come back, they were afraid maybe he died. And others who had gone into the temple thought maybe that they had died because couldn't be in the presence of God and a holy God and live because of our unholiness. Isaiah feared that what would become of him because of God's unique status. Because by definition, holiness cannot be in communion with unholiness. Here you have Isaiah realizing, I am unholy and I'm in the presence of perfect holiness. This can't exist. I'm undone. I'm a dead man. And here we see Isaiah seeing himself from God's perspective not from his own perspective. He was seeing his life and, and his, his character from God's perspective. Romans 12.3 Do not think of yourself more highly than you should, but think of yourselves in accordance with sober judgment. What's that sober judgment? <laughs> how God thinks of me and how God thinks of you. Not what others think of you, what God thinks of you. This should make us appreciate all the more God's gift of his son who has allowed us to approach his throne with confidence. Hebrews 4.16 Then let us, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here, here's, a, here's a holy God and here's Isaiah and a holy in the presence of the holy God and God doesn't strike him down. Actually, God has a response to Isaiah's holiness, which ultimately is the response he gave to us. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6 say this. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken, taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What God did in this vision is he basically atoned for Isaiah's sin by having a seraph come and touch the coal on his lips. And that was a, that was a foresight into ultimately what Jesus would come to do to, on the cross to atone for our sin. And so here, God does something. Isaiah doesn't do it. He can't do it. God does something for Isaiah and doesn't strike him dead, but atones for his sin so that he can be in the presence of a holy God. This is what God does for us so that we can now have fellowship with him, so that we can now be with him, so that we can now walk with him, have a relationship with him. He has atoned for our sin by giving us Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross, being that propitiation for our sins, wiping us clean from them. In Hebrews chapters 4 through 7 describe all this about how now we have such a great high priest and how Jesus had come to be that perfect high priest for us, making that intercession, making that atonement. We've already talked about Romans 5.8, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But perhaps one of the verses that's the best in this and well-known is John 3.16 and 17. For God so loved the world, the whole, our holy God so loved his unholy creation that he sent his only son, 
so that we might have everlasting life. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It goes on in verse 17 to talk about how the Son of Man did not come to destroy that, but to seek and save it. God forgives us our sins because of what Jesus has done. Jesus took on where we should rightfully have stood. And even that would not have been enough. What should be our response to God's forgiveness? Isaiah has a response for it in verse 8. This is Isaiah's response to what God had done for him after he, the seraph touched his lips with the coal and said, you're clean. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah worshiped God because he recognized what, that he was clean because of what God had done, not what Isaiah had done. Isaiah didn't do anything. God did it all. God directed the seraph to come and touch the coal. God made the atonement for Isaiah. He recognized that he was standing in the presence of the holy God and not struck dead because of God's perfect love, because of God's holiness. He willingly, Isaiah willingly put himself into a place of service for God, saying, here I am, send me. That was his response to God's awesome gift. Here I am, send me. What should be our response? Our response should be to worship and celebrate a God who had the right to remove us from his presence, but invited us into a relationship instead. God could have done any number of things differently, perhaps, but he didn't. He chose to pursue man who rebelled against him, humanity who rebelled against him, and said, I want a relationship with you. And here it is. This is, what, this is what's required. This is what I'm offering. Take it. Sadly, many don't. It is the greatest gift ever given. When we are brought into a relationship with him, our worship should lead us to a place of willing service for our holy God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is to be our response to our holy God because of the gift that he has given us. Is to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Lord, this is no longer mine. This is yours. Do with it what you want. What do you want me to do? Here I am. Send me. That phrase scares a lot of people. To say, here I am. Send me. Because they think they're going to get sent to the darkest corners of the, of the earth. And have to sell everything and live in poverty. And sometimes that happens. I'll be honest, sometimes people are called to do that. They are. But they're given an extra measure of grace. It's just awesome to see. But God calls us to be his witnesses. He calls us more than that. He calls us to be 
reflections of his holiness to a lost and dying world. And that, and, and that means being sent to where he sends you. If that's across the street to the neighbor, if that's in your place of work, if that's picking up uh, and moving to another state like uh, a family in our church just did recently. The Lord just felt the Lord picking up and moving them to Oklahoma and away they went. I can't argue with that. That's, I hated to lose them, but they got to go where God's calling them, not where I want them to be. It says then, as we present our bodies, we're going to be able to approve what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Folks, there's a, there's a dying world out there that desperately needs to see Jesus. They desperately need to see this holy God who loves and wants to pursue a relationship with them. And the only glimpse they're most likely going to get of that is what they see through us in our lives as we live it out for them. So what does all this mean? When we come face to face with the holiness of God, the only proper response is to worship the God who grants us a relationship with him and to serve him with our very lives. Remember, God chose to save us. His holiness is not something to be taken lightly. Yes, he is our friend and we are his children, but he is still our holy father. And we must not lose sight of that. We must respect that attribute and keep it in its proper place. Not trying to lower our Holy Father to a place of human form and, and, and on the same level as humanity, because he is not. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, made available by what Jesus Christ has done, we can be in holy service to him and in a loving, abiding relationship with him. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward, and as they do, this is a good place for us to transition to communion, because we think about the holiness of God. We think about what Jesus Christ has done to allow us to stand in the presence of a holy God, because that's what we are. We are standing in the presence of a holy God who... If it wasn't, again, for what Jesus had done, if it wasn't for his love, if it wasn't for all those attributes working together, none of us would be here. None of us would have the, the life and things that, that, that God has been uh, uh, building us toward and, and moving us in. And when we understand his, his holiness in its proper perspective, that we understand that nothing that God does and nothing that he allows to happen to us is by accident. Because he is perfect. And all of his attributes are perfect. And we may not always understand what he does, when he does it, and why he allows certain things to happen in our lives or happen to loved ones in our lives. But we can trust this, that God knows, and that his will is perfect in these matters. And so communion is that time for us to reflect on these kinds of things and, and to, to remember what Jesus has done. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you'll take your communion cup and pull the wafer off, 
Just hang on to it for a moment. I will give thanks, and then we'll eat a bit together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body that hung on that cross in our place. Thank you for your body that gives us life, that allows us to have an entrance into that relationship with our Holy Father. That you willingly gave and took on human flesh so that you might stand in our place and be that perfect, acceptable sacrifice so that all we have to do is to receive what you give. Lord, thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, the cup symbolizing Christ's blood that was shed for us, that brings us cleansing from sin, that washes us whiter than snow so that we can stand and be in the presence of a holy God, that our unholiness is washed away, even though at times we don't feel like it. Because of what Christ has done, he has still cleansed us from that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for willingly shedding that so that we can be washed clean, whiter than snow. So that we can stand in your presence without fear, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Thank you, Lord, for this great and awesome gift. Amen. Take it together. Paul closes us out by saying, Whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is going to continue to walk with us until that day when he takes us all home. We can count on that. God's perfect holiness, perfect love, his perfect truth, all of those perfect attributes are still at work today. And we get to experience Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that you are the Holy God that there is none other like you, and that you are our God, that you have chosen to seek and save that which was lost, and sending the perfect sacrifice in your Son, so that we might have life and have it to the full. But Lord, I pray that we would not take your holiness for granted, that we would not treat it casually, but that we would remember and respect it to honor it. Lord, to, to know how to, to relate to you as a friend and yet as our Holy Father as well. That all that we do, Lord, would bring you glory and honor and praise to the highest. Peter writes this for us in 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 13 following. Therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from an empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Amen. God bless you all. I look forward to seeing you here uh, next week or online again, wherever you might be. And have, a, have an awesome week and uh, go with God. Bless you.